Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello, and welcome to Compliance Clarified, a podcast for risk and compliance professionals brought to you by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Each week, we discuss news stories and topical issues from our journalists and analysts in the U.S., Europe, Asia, and Australia. I'm Rachel Wolcott, speaking to you today from London. I have a special guest, Michelle Giddings, head of anti-money laundering at the Institute for Chartered Accountants in England and Wales. Welcome, Michelle. Hello, Rachel. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Compliance Clarified usually covers anti-money laundering topics from a strictly financial services point of view. But for the ninth episode of season nine, we're going to look at accountancy. The Institute for Chartered Accountants in England and Wales, also known as the ICAEW, also acts as the professional body supervisor for anti-money laundering to its members. Five years ago, the Office for Professional Body Anti-Money Laundering Supervisors, or OPBAS, was established to supervise the 25 or so professional body supervisors in the legal and accountancy sectors, of which the ICAEW is one. OPVAS, in turn, is part of the Financial Conduct Authority. The professional body supervisor approach has come under criticism from lawmakers and it for not being robust enough to manage AML risks arising from accounting and law firms. The most recent OPBAS report in April, however, found improvements, but it also said many professional body supervisors were falling short of expectations. The UK government is considering changing its approach to supervising professional services firms like accountants and lawyers for anti-money laundering purposes. One of the options on the table is eliminating OPBAS and moving to a single regulator or a combined professional business services uh, supervisor. But Michelle, before we discuss the ICAW's response to the government consultation on the future of professional body supervisors, AML supervision, please tell us a little about yourself and your role at the ICAEW. Thanks, Rachel. So I'm the head of AML at ICAW, and that means that I have lead operational responsibility for the AML supervision of the just under 11,000 firms in our population. ICAW is the largest of the professional body supervisors, although HMRC is the largest accountancy sector supervisor. I think they have about 14,000 firms. I'm also co-chair of the Accountancy AML Supervisors Group, and this group brings together all of the accountancy supervisors to ensure that we deliver a consistent supervisory approach, that we share best practice activity, and we publish material for the sector, guidance material, training material, such as our risk outlook um, and the more general um, AML guidance for the accountancy sector. Also, as part of that role as co-chair of the Accountancy AML Supervisors Group, I 
I represent that body um, in a number of forums, including on the public-private steering group, which sits within the governance structure for the economic crime plan, and also on a number of subgroups of that governance structure, which look at the money laundering and fraud threats, as well as identifying actions and KPIs that we can implement and use to just implement that continual um, improvement in the AML supervision of our firms. Um, it's really important that we're able to measure our improvements, make sure that they're effective and that they're really making a difference. Right. And that really comes out in your response to the government's consultation. I mean, you're not just answering the questions, you're giving them a lot of information about the different risks in their various approaches they've suggested. And you're really, you've taken the opportunity to underscore a lot of the good things that have been going on at uh, supervisors like the ICAEW. So let's dive into your response to the government consultation. What is the ICAEW advocating for in terms of an approach and why? So high level, we set out our preferred option as being option one, which uh, in consultation terms is the OPBAS plus model. So this was where effectively we sort of stuck with the nuts and bolts of what we have now, but OPBAS is given um, more powers to take faster and swifter, uh, more significant action against professional body supervisors if they aren't making the, the necessary improvement that OPBAS wants to see. We came to that conclusion through a careful assessment of each of the options, the four options that government set out against their own reform objectives. Um, and we carefully considered actually lots of different risks to UK PLC. We think that there's potentially quite a lot of risk around people and talent. There's some risk around um, intelligence sharing and all the structures that we've put in place over the last four or five years. And there's risk around things like education and guidance. And our analysis showed that the implementation of the consolidated PBS, the single statutory professional supervisor, or the single AML supervisor, so options two, three, and four, they would all create supervisory systems that will be over the next five or 10 or 15 years, significantly less effective than what we have now. And then that actually their adoption would probably take many years to recover to get back to even where we're at today. So our response wasn't written from the perspective of the best option for ICAW, because uh, actually I think in reality, each of the options have limited impact on ICAW itself from an operational perspective. Uh, you know, we are genuinely concerned for the public interest and we want to ensure that AML supervision in the UK continues to be world leading. We felt overall the option one, that OPBAS Plus, it would really build on the significant progress that has been made uh, since OPBAS was created. Um, they continually raise the standard they expect of the professional body supervisors. And OPBAS Plus is the only model that can really build on that momentum and deliver the meaningful change without substantial risk to all of those areas like talent and intelligence sharing and education. Um, and actually, a lot has changed over the past four or five years. And, and as a, an aside, I do personally believe, and ICAW believes, that option one itself should lead to some consolidation of professional body supervisors because technically if OPBAS has the appropriate powers with the appropriate teeth and they use them in the right way then 
poorer performing PBSs, to the extent they exist, should be removed from AML supervision. And you also make the point that the groups like the ICAEW's memberships already invested quite a lot in the OPBAS approach. I think it was about three million pounds. You mentioned that you know got the economic crime levy that's just started. One of my big takeaways was, like you were saying, was just to keep going with the positive momentum. Absolutely, yeah, and and so for us, the the way Opbus is funded is that they they charge us um, a levy based on uh, the number of individuals that we supervise, basically, and then we pass that down to the firm. So the firms themselves have paid a lot of money into the Opbus model, and we still. Um, have some way to go and on the point of cost actually if you look at you know options three and four to create a new statutory body of the size that's necessary I think I think option three would end up with something like 80,000 entities and option four would have something like 100,000 entities so the size of organization just to manage that is enormous and therefore I think actually it's quite costly um, to, to business who are the ones that ultimately end up paying through um, the fees that are paid by the, the firms themselves that are regulated they then pass that on through the, the invoices that they charge to their clients. You also had some ideas for to improve on the proposals for Opbest Plus I mean obviously this is just being sketched out in the consultation paper uh, but one of the things that you suggested was that uh, OPBAS Plus or that the, I wasn't clear if it was the ICAEW would have the power to maintain a register of supervised firms within the accountancy sector, or did you think that would be something for OPBAS to do? And w- what might be some of the benefits there? It seemed like a company's house for accountants almost. <laughs> Yeah. So one of the challenges of there being, so there's 13 accountancy professional body supervisors, is that um, if one of the law enforcement agencies comes across a firm that they think might be involved somehow, or they want to report that information to the supervisor, um, they find it tricky to work out who the supervisor is for that individual. Um, They can email us all and we can do our own searches and let them know or they have to go to our individual websites to find the information. I think one of the things in the consultation that that was trying to be fixed was this kind of system coordination of how do we make the system work more effectively. And rather than getting rid of all of the professional body supervisors because it's complicated to work out which one is which, we could just have a list of all of the firms that are supervised and who their supervisor is. And we actually proposed that it should be OPBAS that could um, have the power to hold that information. The FCA itself already holds similar registers for the populations it supervises. So they could use a similar framework and model. I think, you know, they've got a blueprint, as it were, to create it. Um, and an equivalent register already exists for the trust and company service providers. That's currently housed by HMRC. So we we just thought, you know, this is a solution that brings together that system coordination without the radical reform that some of the op- other options suggested. Another one of the big issues that you raised in your consultation response was around talent and recruitment and how it's already difficult and that getting skilled and experienced AML managers was, you know, it's already difficult across financial services. There's a lot of competition for talent. A lot of people in the accountancy sector are doing this as a second job already. Um, 
but how might a change to a consolidated or a single regulator make this skills challenge even tougher for supervisors? Yeah, so there are very few professionals in the UK who've got that experience and expertise in AML supervision of professional services work. And that might be in terms of devising policy or producing education material or actually delivering, carrying out the monitoring reviews to the firms themselves. And virtually all of those professionals are employed by the current PBSs. So it's difficult to conceive how a consolidated PBS, that statutory professional services supervisor, the SPSS, or a single um, AML supervisor would be able to operate completely effectively um, if those experienced staff that are with the current PBSs stay in their current roles and don't transfer to any new model. Um, and I think it would be really difficult for um, for that consolidated PBS, the SPSS or the SAS, um, to recruit replacements to identify AML risks within accountancy firms, because there's a real severe mismatch between supply and demand of experienced accountants and the highest salaries on offer at the firms themselves. Uh, so in our response, we talk about this as being um, people risk. And we say that this people risk uh, will kind of manifest itself in two ways. The first is we get, there's going to be a transition period between any announcement by HMT about which of the four options they're going to go for. And from that date until the creation of the new model, let's say they go for one of the consolidator options, between that period, the PBSs are at risk of losing all of their staff into more lucrative positions that are already on offer in the commercial sector. Um, because you know the PBSs can't offer them long-term job security. So that skills and experience will be lost for this transition period, even before um, the new model is created. And then the new model will find it really difficult to lure those individuals back because, um, because of those competitive salaries that are, that are offered by the firms. And then there's this other risk um, that even if the staff stay with the PBSs during that transition period, um, there's quite a strong possibility. You know, a lot of me and my colleagues in the professional body supervisors, we, we have other roles, there's other functions, there's plenty of work always going on in the professional bodies. Um, so those with AML supervisory expertise may well choose to remain employed by their PBS and, and take on other roles and responsibilities within that PBS. So where is the consolidated PBS or the, the two statutory models? You know, how are they going to staff themselves? And there's been such a demand for AML specialists over the last few years. We've seen um, the UKFIU have a significant recruitment drive. That's what the economic crime levy you mentioned before was, was funding um, the increased staff at the UKFIU. Companies House is increasing its resources because there's lots of work that they've got to do following the economic crime corporate transparency act you know so so we have this real concern you know where is an enlarged supervisor going to find the staff that it needs to supervise effectively and that kind of underpins that argument of ours that those those option two three or four the reason why you're likely have a backward step in effectiveness is because of the loss of that talent and expertise from the supervisory sector yeah absolutely and one thing that we've talked about before on the podcast and you know in our coverage on regulatory intelligence is that you don't 
go to university and think, oh, I'm going to be an MLRO, I'm going to study um, financial crime, although you can. So in your situation, you're having, not only are you interested in AML, economic crime, but you also have the the accountancy um, viewpoint on. And like we're going to talk about later, you've been doing so much on education and really trying to take the message to the accountancy sector that takes a lot of knowledge of accountancy and anti-money laundering, which would be even more of a specialized subject um, that, again, people aren't naturally going to, um, you know, when they're thinking about doing GCSEs or whatever. Um, So recently, uh, the ICAW and some of the other uh, PBSs wrote to Treasury to underscore your concerns about potentially doing away with OPBAS. And what were some of the risks you emphasized to Treasury and what kind of response did you receive? So overall, the letter from so it was it was written by AASG, the the group that I co-chair, and the letter overall supported a call for supervisory reform. You know, we do agree that there can be some changes, um, so that economic crime is better tackled by the supervisory framework. Um, but within the letter, we set out some of the risks as we saw them for the accountancy sector. Um, the first being around people and talent, which we've just talked about, but we also talked quite a bit about some of the transition risks in that letter moving to a different model um there'll be a significant administrative burden that will be created you know the amount of data that will need to be transferred to a new supervisor just the sheer task of creating that body is is fairly enormous and you know there's potential for information to, to fall down between stools um during that period of time. Um, But we also wanted to take the opportunity to remind Treasury of, you know, all of the activity that's happened over the past four years, because OPAS has made some really good strides to improve the regime. They set up the Information Sharing Expert Working Group, which looked at specific tactical cases within the sector. um, And they facilitated um, and encouraged in some cases I think mandated the PBSs to sign up to key information sharing systems um, but in terms of response so Baroness Penn did did respond she did write back um, and in in that response she recognized that supervisory reform is an area of great importance to the accountancy PBSs um, she referred to the engagement that we'd had with Treasury over the summer and expressed her thanks for the round tables we set up with representatives from the sector so we're trying to get um, to speak to firms face to face to understand the impact on them of any supervisory reform but in terms of other response, I think there's been some online commentary that um, ASG's decision to back option one uh, was self-interested. And I never really understand that comment about self-interested because I'm not sure um, why that why that would be self-interest. But, you know, to be honest, for ICAW, I, I think I said this before, it wouldn't really impact us very negatively, actually, operationally, if we lost AML supervision. But, um, but all of the PBS is felt quite strongly that a model where a single supervisor looks after 100,000 entities or 80,000 entities, I think that will result in poorer AML supervision. And actually, we're at risk of going back to what things were like 
five, 10 years ago when AML was really dominated by the banks and the financial sector and some of the other sectors kind of got um, a little bit overshadowed by the, the bigger issues that were there. The, the, the way the model works at the moment is that the PBSs are very focused on supervision in our sector. Um, and that's one of the things that lends to the more effective um, me- methodology that we think would come out of Opbus Plus. The FCA currently has, I think, 51,000 firms that it supervises. And that's already like a huge task from any standpoint, you know, be it, you know, prudential or from a financial crime perspective. I mean, a hundred thousand entities under one roof. That would be really difficult. I mean, you did, I think, at ICAW, like a thousand reviews this year. <laughs> That's a huge amount. Um, I wonder what that would look like at this, you know, combined supervisor overseeing a hundred thousand entities. It would be a huge amount of, of work to do. Um, a lot of what's in the consultation, your consultation response. You know, it seems to be challenging this idea that OPBAS and the PBSs aren't working. And when I spoke to you in the Law Society Scotland earlier in the year, I mean, it was really clear that a lot was going on at both organizations to, to make improvements and that you were always reviewing what you'd been doing and looking to roll out new education and figure out how to communicate effectively with your stakeholders. So, you know, what's really behind this criticism of Opbass? I mean, is it fair? It's, it seems like it's like you said, it's only five years old. It's definitely a work in progress. You know, some of the criticism seems pretty harsh. Yeah. And I think the criticism itself, I think, is out of date. You know, looking back now at five years ago, some of the challenges that were levied at the sector and the accountancy professional body supervisors um, was fair back then. There was more that we could that we could do to enhance our supervisory effectiveness. But over the past four years, um, all of the professional bodies have invested significant resources. Um, to make sure supervision is as effective as possible. Um, so an example of that at the ICAW is that we've employed an AML intelligence officer to harness all of the AML intelligence we hold on our firms and to help us with um, identifying risks and horizon scanning. And one thing in particular that that post has really helped us open up dialogue with law enforcement because there used to be quite a barrier between information sharing between law enforcement and um, professional body supervisors. Some of that, I think, was cultural, that they felt uneasy sharing information outside of the the law enforcement framework. Um, Some of it was, you know, as I was saying before, they didn't really know who to tell because they couldn't work out who the supervisor was. But for us, having a post like our AML intelligence officer means that we have this very dedicated route for them to share that information into. So the dialogue was missing four or five years ago, but now we have a much more open communication channel. Although, to be honest, the amount that gets passed through that channel is still fairly limited. Um, 
I think one of the reasons for the previous criticism of professional body supervisors was based on this misunderstanding about how we supervise our firms and what we do and how we utilize the risk-based approach. So at ICAW, um, we review the AML compliance of our firms at least every eight years. Um, and as you mentioned, last year, we did over a thousand monitoring reviews to the firms, a range of sizes, a range of risk ratings. And again, we'll, we'll, we'll replicate that this year. We'll be in the same kind of, kind of number. We have 35 reviewers out on site doing monitoring reviews each week. Um, and what all of that means is that some of our firms have received at least two monitoring visits since we became an AML supervisor back in 2007. On the other hand, other sectors don't have that same approach to monitoring. And so I think, you know, looking at that model of supervising 100,000 firms, they'll utilize a risk-based approach where they only go out and do monitoring reviews to the largest, to the highest risk firms. And that means that there'll be tranches of lower risk firms that will never, ever be inspected. Um, but I don't know that that's, that's not merited. That's not the way that ICAW prefers to supervise. We have this cyclical review for all of our firms. They all get inspected no matter what. Um, because I guess fundamentally, we believe that what can be more effective in terms of AML supervision than going out um, to inspect the CDD and firm-wide risk assessments that are actually performed by our firms. Um, that's the real way to tell about you know, what, what AML compliance actually looks like. And I think another criticism that we face um, is around the fines that the accountancy professional bodies issue to firms. Um, and I think this is based on a comparison of the, the absolute number. So there's been some recent fines by the FCA where the fine has been in the tens of millions or the hundreds of millions. And then when you compare that to an accountancy body where, you know, some of our fines might only be 1,000 or 2,000 or even maybe just a few hundred pounds. But it's really important, I think, for everybody to understand the context of those fines. So firstly, because we do so many monitoring reviews, our fines and sanctions relate to non-compliance with the requirements of the regs. And they're not necessarily about actual money laundering, whereas the more recent FCA cases generally have quite a strong thread of actual money laundering in them, as well as weaker policies and procedures. But secondly, the firms in the accountancy sector overall are just not the size of business that could take a ten of million, tens of millions of pounds fine. Um, and in our consultation response, actually, we did do some analysis of the fines we'd issued as a percentage of the firm's revenue. And they were in the range of 1% to 20% of the total practice fee income. And the average is somewhere between 4 or 5%. So when you kind of think that that's akin to the types of maximum fine from you know gdpr breaches then the fines aren't low when when you consider them relative to the size of the firm with sanctioning and actually the thing that is being um that the enforcement action relates to i'm kim vanell join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world from the front line in ukraine extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover to the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, compare an accountancy firm with a financial services firm, you know, a tier one bank. 
think that would not be a apples to apples comparison when you're thinking about the millions and millions of transactions that go through a big bank every day and the financial crime risk and AML risk that it that exposes them to and all the kinds of monitoring and controls that they're supposed to have in place. I mean, it's a, it's a lot different. Speaking of some of your reviews, you recently ran a thematic review on MLROs at 240 medium to high risk accountancy firms. And, you know, I thought this, that this was really interesting because uh, also in financial services, MLRO quality and competence is a, you know, a big topic. So what were some of your uh, key findings? Yeah, so we, we, we decided to do this review because we sort of had some anecdotal information that the role of the MLRO is very challenging. Um, and in a lot of the smallest accountancy firms, the role of the MLRO and the role of the accountant more generally actually is that they're, that they're a bit of a, a GP in the medical sense. They're, they're this general practitioner that has to be able to look across a wide range of symptoms or red flags and be able to work out what that means and what's serious and what's not serious and have a, a broad understanding um, of a number of different types of typology. And, you know, they have to know all the geographies and all the sectors, et cetera, et cetera. There's a real, a real sense of challenge for them keeping on top of all of that. So we wanted to do a bit more of a deeper dive into um, different aspects of their role. And so we asked them a range of questions on things like, what other roles do they have in the firm? And how long do they spend on their role as a proportion of their time each week, all the way through to what training they do? Um, and what we found was that out of the 240 MLROs included in the thematic review, all bar one had client-facing roles. So as well as being responsible for the AML compliance for the firm, they were also directly delivering accountancy services to a range of clients. And then when we asked them about how much time they spent on the MLRO function, the MLRO role, 86% of them said that they spent less than 20% of their time on MLRO matters. Um, and I think that Basically, that shows that in a lot of accountancy firms, the principals in those firms, the directors or partners in the accountancy firm, there's a huge raft of regulation and compliance matters for them to grapple with at the same time as actually running their business and delivering the service that they're there to do. Um, and so as an AML supervisor, we need to support them um, in using the time they do have as effectively as possible and ensuring that they have all the tools and the resources that they need to have close at hand to ensure that their AML compliance is as strong as possible. Yeah, and you were look asked them about what kind of tools they were looking at and using the most, you know, who they were talking to, where they, they were getting information from. I thought that was really interesting. Um, you also mentioned that not everybody, well, I think hardly very few had any kind of professional training in, directly in uh, anti-money laundering, like an ACAM certificate or something like that. And that there were some really challenging technical aspects of the role that sometimes were um, difficult for them to understand doing this uh, on a part-time basis. So one of those was the DAML SAR, and you were 
also you also asked them about uh, suspicious activity reporting. Yeah, we did. Um, and so we were kind of some quite basic questions about do you have an online account with the UKFIU to file? And I think we found that just over half did and therefore 47% didn't, um, which is quite low, especially in this cohort of firms because we um, our sample was from our high-medium risk bucket. Um, so we've got some work to do there. And like you say, on the DAML SARS, there seemed to be – we did a, a DAML webinar um, a couple of years ago, and we've noticed that that's the least watched of all of our webinars. <laughs> oh, um, no. And we, th- and I, I, you know, I, Shocking. I get that it's, cause it could be quite a dry topic. I get that, <laughs> but at the same time, it's really important that they all, you know, they know it and they know these this this reporting framework kind of off by heart. Um, so we need to do more to raise a bit more awareness here and to encourage them all to sign up to SARS reporting, if nothing else. Um, and we're hoping we actually have a webinar next March that we're doing in conjunction with the UKFIU, mainly to showcase the new system actually and do a bit allow the UKFIU to do a bit of a show and tell to our firms. Um, and that will be all about raising awareness, telling them what a high quality SAR looks like. When they do submit a SAR, what is it that the UKFIU and law enforcement need to know to be able to put that intelligence to good use? Yeah, the FCA did one uh, with the FIU this summer uh, for payment firms. There's a, a webinar. Um, I think it's still online. Uh, it's There's a lot in there. They really do go through uh, what firms need to do and actually what they're looking for as well which I think is, is really helpful. But you've also just put out your um, annual report into anti-money laundering um, at the ICAEW. And I mean, it, it, there's a lot in there and we can link to it in the show notes. But you looked at some enforcement actions this year. Um, you did a lot of work uh teasing out what sort of the common themes were. Uh, client due diligence and uh, risk assessments were one of them, some of them. I mean, what were some of the things that you highlighted this year that came out from some of the enforcement actions that you took? So firstly, the, the results of the monitoring reviews show most firms are compliant or generally compliant. And those are phrases that Treasury uses um, and for which there's a common definition across the supervisors to allow comparison between sectors. In our recent annual report that you mentioned there, uh, we published that at the at the end of October, that showed that for the year ended 5th of April 2023, because HMT asks us to, to report on their financial year, but for, for that year ending 5th of April 2023, 84% of firms were in the compliant and generally compliant bucket. So ultimately, that means that they have got the policies and procedures that they need to have in place. And that when we'd gone out and done our review, we had seen evidence that those policies and procedures were operating effectively. Um, And in some cases, there was a limited number of improvements required. Now, that's slightly down on the previous year, which the same uh, so it was 86% of firms were compliant or generally compliant last year compared with 84% this year. But it's very difficult actually to make comparisons across 
year groups because we um, visit a completely different group of firms each year. But Nevertheless, actually, we do still find consistency in the type of matters we raise for the firms. Um, and in the report, we set out our top 10 findings. And what that broadly shows is that the top 10 for this year is roughly the same as the top 10 as the previous year. And actually, I think it was probably the same as the top 10 for the year before that. Um, some of them move up and down. There are movers and shakers within that top 10. But but pretty much they stay the same. And, and as you mentioned, yes, the, the number one finding is um, that firms don't kind of update their CDD throughout the duration of the client relationship. Um, now, you have to kind of get under the skin a little bit of what that means and when we raise it and why do we raise that particular finding. So we will raise that what we call a matter requiring action for a firm if there's no evidence of updated CDD on at least one of the sampled client files that we pick. Um, and so we might therefore raise this particular finding about lack of ongoing CDD at a firm where they have actually updated CDD on some of their clients, but not all of them. In some other cases, we find that when we've had a conversation with the firm, they can talk about what they do, but they just haven't written it down. So again, that, that type of firm would get this finding. In other cases, actually the electronic systems that they use make it difficult to document how they've updated their review. Um, and there's a bit of work, I think, generally to be done around electronic CDD systems to make sure that they're completely fit for purpose in delivering firms with the tool that they need to, to document and monitor CDD. Um, the second most common finding was around performing a risk assessment of the client. Um, I think we find that firms get a little bit fix fixated on verifying identity rather than kind of doing that risk assessment to determine the amount of evidence that they need to get. And so again, we'll have raised this if we've seen it just on, on one of the sampled client files. Um, and so it, it's, it, it gets raised in a range of scenarios. And going back to that electronic CDD point, I think sometimes firms take on or kind of buy in um, CDD software that is maybe badged as being whole of CDD but actually is only either KYC or is only verification and doesn't include that middle bit the risk assessment um, so yeah so just from those two you can see that our most common findings in the enforcement action we therefore tend to take is actually around compliance um, or um, if a firm isn't compliant we very rarely identify cases from those monitoring reviews where a firm's weak procedures has meant that they've taken on a client that is actually been involved in money laundering or has used the firm to launder. Right. Actually, speaking about um, updating uh, client due diligence, uh, that feeds in nicely to the education question I'm going to ask you. Uh, that, you know, we, we're talking about that you do a lot of this at the ICAEW in your role as an AML supervisor. And I think last year, the idea of around the importance of ongoing client due diligence uh, was a key feature or key theme in your in the short film that you made, which was all too familiar, where a customer had changed and suspicions were being raised about this uh, about this particular customer. Um, so, and that's a film, short film, 15 minutes that you did alongside HMRC. I 
read in one of your reports you're working on a new film. This is uh, amazing. <laughs> and so, oh, what else do you have going on? Well, yeah, so we do have plans for more films. Um, so the films were actually, um, they were uh, released, it was released for free to our supervised population and HMRC supervised population, but we licensed it to international global firms. And um, using that money, we're able to reinvest back and make another film, which hopefully, again, we'll be able to offer for free. But it, it always takes time to produce these films because you have to come up with a realistic storyline and script. Um, and, and you know, it would, be, it would be quite cool this time around to do something that encompasses a number of different sectors, you know, with, I don't know, say a conveyancing transaction and we can bring in legal and um, estate agency or, or something like that. But but we'll get there. We'll, we'll work it out and see what we can do. But in the meantime, um, look, we just continue to try and issue as much free training and guidance to our firms as we can as possible. Um, this year, we've done another three free webinars and we're really we get really good traction with those really good feedback we have about 800 attendees on each of on each of them in march we did a session on what is risk and we got the mlros at some of our largest firms to come and talk about their experiences and to share um, kind of examples of high risk clients that they've come across in the due diligence work they did to mitigate the risks with the idea being that it helps the smaller firms get get across some of those risk topics, understand what risk looks like, but also what you need to do to mitigate risk. Because quite often what we see back to the verification point is that firms will tend to just keep collecting pieces of um, ID verification, more utility bills and a driving license and a passport. And of course, sometimes that just does not address the risk that they've identified. Um, we covered in the summer, we did firm-wide risk assessments and, and actually put up versions of firm-wide risk assessments on screen and talked through firms what good looks like, what we expect to see when we, when we come out. Um, and then just a few weeks ago, we talked about the findings of the MLRA thematic review um, and, and did a webinar on that. But our, our plan going forward actually is through that thematic review, we've identified that we need to continue to support MLR Rose in their role. And we're trying to work out what suite of resources we can pull together so that they can focus on the areas of compliance that really matter um, and that will keep their firms in that compliant or generally compliant um, category. Um, and so I, circling back around actually to our earlier discussion about supervisory reform, I think the benefit of having the professional bodies involved in supervision is exactly this, the, the sort of range of guidance and training we can deliver to our firms. You know, we directly feed back to them very regularly about what they should be doing, what we're finding on our visits, what good looks like. And we can turn that into very practical application and help them understand how to bed this into their day-to-day -day activities. Whereas I think traditionally that's not a function that the statutory supervisors are focused on. They, they tend to focus more on their monitoring inspections and enforcement and don't have that same range of training support that we do. I think that's really important because, as you said also, that very few or I guess only one MLRO in the review that you did didn't ha also have client-facing responsibilities and that they don't have all day long to, to spend all this. So 
helping them know what to look for and be prepared is really key. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Michelle. I really appreciate it. I think that this is, you've given us a lot of insight onto what goes on at, uh, in terms of AML supervision at the ICAEW. Look forward to hearing more about that and seeing the new movie when it comes out. <laughs> Hopefully I'll get a chance to take a look at it. But that's it for this week's Compliance Clarified. Your feedback is important to us, so please give us a rating on your podcasting platform of choice. Or you can get in touch directly. Our contact details are in the show notes. For more information about regulatory intelligence, please search for Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence or check the show notes for a link. Thanks again. Bye. Compliance Clarified a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.